We're going to look at uh, the next bit of Ezra. Um, we've just watched a, a little thing about it's smarter to travel in groups, the value of being in community. Ezra, if you've been with us a couple of three weeks ago, whenever it was we started, or if you've looked on our website and you've seen the first session in Ezra. Ezra is a book in the Old Testament. It's written to people. Uh, it's written about people who have returned, and therefore there's, there's quite a, a parallel with our experience. So you fit into this story. They returned not after 18 months. They returned after 70 years. So they were returning to the place that their parents and their grandparents had told them about. They were returning to a place that they didn't actually know firsthand. They had been uh, hundreds of miles away in exile, and... Uh, the place that they valued, their temple, had been destroyed. And we're going to see and look at, again, why they went back to rebuild it and what that meant for them. Now, about uh, three or four years ago, I used a cartoon at the Churches Together service that was here um, some years ago. You may or may not remember it. And at the time, I thought it was quite funny, and I still think it's reasonably funny. However, uh, it uh, has unwittingly, and without any intention, when I looked at it this week, I thought, oh my word, we've done quite a few of these things in the last few months by mistake. The cartoon is entitled, How to Make Church Brilliant. And I uh, looked at this again, it's Dave Walker, uh, cartoon, these are really fun things to have a look at, but he lists a number of things to make church look brilliant. Uh, the first one is to place a plant pot here. We've now got plant pots. We didn't when we first showed this cartoon, we do now. The second, make allowances for those who find the service time a bit early. We now live stream at 8.30 for people to watch in bed before they come to church through the day. We didn't anticipate that being the case but that's what's happened. Have some comfortable seating was the third thing, which again, we do. Uh, again, we've introduced these for our 8.30, and I'm going to sit in those a little bit later. Um, the next bit we haven't managed to achieve. It says, uh, make the preaching dynamic, <laughs> but we'll do what we can uh, with, the, with the equipment we've got. Um, the next one, encourage the kids to participate, and that's always been a key feature for us as a church, and something that's really, really important. Next, it says, serve drinks and snacks, and uh, that is something that we want to do, and as soon as uh, the COVID statistics continue to go a little bit further in the right direction, we're going to be able to serve refreshments before and after this service. We hope that you feel able to, to stay and linger and chat with people uh, even longer and have a drink together if you want. So that's uh, something we very much want to do. Uh, play some good tunes, uh, perhaps over some sort of headphone system. Well, I, I hope you like the music that we play before our services and after our services. If you don't complain to somebody else, if you do like them, I've chosen them. If you don't like them, don't tell me. Uh, but lastly, he says this, oh yes, genuinely be nice to one another and that sort of thing. And of course, that is actually really the essence of church, isn't it? It's about community. And we can have all the flying gizmos and the acrobatics and the potted plants and the comfortable chairs. But if basically when we meet with other Christians, they are unpleasant or they are difficult or they are moany or they are grouchy or they are hypocritical, then the whole thing becomes pointless. 
What is church? Is it a people or a place? This story in Ezra is about them returning to build, rebuild a building to make a place special again. Now, is that completely outdated for us or is there some point to it? Is church, us as people, whether we're here in the building or whether we're watching this on a screen at some point, what is church? Well, it is, of course, both and, and we're going to explore that as we go through together. If you weren't with us before, we were looking, and we just we managed to do half of one verse our first time. Uh, I seem to have got slower and slower in talking through the Bible. Maybe it's because I set out to preach through the entire Bible uh, some uh, 30 years ago. And I'm slowing down to make it last so that I can still have something to say when I'm 95. Uh, so we're just going slowly through. Anyway, so, this, so what happens is that, that the people uh, who lived in Judah, which is uh, a, 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 the southern part of the, the, the combined nation of Israel, people who lived in Judah had been taken away into exile, into Babylon. And then Babylon itself had been overrun by Persia. And Cyrus is the king of Persia. And he takes over, and this is where the story begins. And he fulfills the prophecy in Jeremiah, which we looked at before. You can find it on our website. You can find a podcast or whatever. Uh, and this idea that consequence and difficulty will not last forever, but rather that God has good plans. That's what we looked at before and how he, God moves Cyrus's heart to issue the decree. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 2, this is the decree that um, Cyrus issues. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, all the kingdoms that he knew about. A little bit of exaggeration, a little bit of arrogance going on there. But all the kingdoms that he knew about. He has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And any of his people among you, may their God be with them. Let them go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And any locality where survivors may now be living, the people has provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, people uh, debate as to why Cyrus does it. He isn't, he isn't necessarily a believer in, this, in the God of Israel, the creator God, our God, Yahweh. Uh, what he probably believed was that if he pleased every group of people that he had now conquered, if they all worshipped their own God, and if their gods came back to him, then he would... Uh, be able to, uh, uh, if you like, benefit from every god doing what he wanted. So he was, he was kind of covering his bets and get every god to follow him. So he says, in a way, he does believe in the God of Israel, but it doesn't stop him believing in a load of other gods. He's kind of uh, half there, half not there. But he wants to have this God on his side. And he understands that to do that, they need to rebuild their temple. So we're going to ask this question. Why was rebuilding the temple so significant? And what on earth does that mean for us? Now, as we go through this, if you want to ask a question, uh, there is a text 
uh, a mobile phone number there, 754489 If you text that, Dan will pick that up, and he will bring what he can for me to answer. Um, if it's on subject, on message, uh, I'm not going to be able to answer every question about the meaning of life, so try and keep it relevant to the subject, and I'll do my best. If anything you think, I didn't quite understand what that meant, could you just explain that a little bit more? What about this? What about that? And we'll see where we go with it. So, why was rebuilding the temple so significant? Well, we need to try and remember and understand what this temple was. It was built by Solomon. You can see a lot more about it in 1 Kings 8, if you go and have a look at that sometime in your leisure. And it's now been destroyed. So when the people were taken by the Babylonians into exile, it was destroyed. So there's just rubble left. It's damaged. And there is, therefore, this encouragement from Cyrus, hearing the will of this disgruntled people to rebuild the temple. So why was it significant? A number of things. The first thing is that the building was a sign of God's presence that we've come to understand that God uses physical things to help us spiritually. And that we're not just, everything's not just in the mind. There are things that we can see and touch and experience. And right at the very heart of their city, their capital, on a hill was this building, and it reminded them that God was with them. There was a series of um, uh, rooms and buildings in the very heart of it, uh, had been kept the Ten Commandments, the covenant, the agreement between God and his people. And that was symbolizing that God was there with them. So for them, the presence of God was symbolized by this temple. And therefore, the destruction of the temple was massively painful because it symbolized that God had left. You know, like when it says Elvis has left the building. It's like God has left because it's been destroyed. So to rebuild it, is to say God is back, God is with us again. It was a physical reminder that God was with them. And the design taught them something about God, that he was uh, holy and special and significant. So they had this inner room where I said that the Ten Commandments had been kept. By this time, they'd lost the Ten Commandments. They weren't able to bring them back. Um, Indiana Jones couldn't find them either, apparently. But there we go. It is Indiana Jones, isn't it? Yeah. It's a film reference for those of you wondering what we're talking about. Um, where was I? So yeah, in this inner room was this, this, this whole, holy place where they felt that God's presence was and there was a curtain that stopped people from going in and only the high priest could go in once a year after all kinds of rituals. So ordinary plebs like you and I, we would be way on the outside, but we would be able to offer sacrifices to get a little bit closer. So there were things that we could do that reminded us that God was there, but that we were sinful. God at the center of their lives. And it was big. It was a big building. And there's a sense in which, I don't know if you like buildings and you go and see big buildings, but some big buildings, they give you a sense of awe, whether it's a cathedral or it's a stadium. Um, I remember the first time I uh, went to the old Wembley and you climbed and climbed. It's the escalators now, but in the old days, you used to climb stairs and stairs and stairs and stairs. And you come out at the top when I was about 13, and you look over this huge stadium and this sense of awe. 
And when people build churches, they have the same idea of creating the sense of awe. The architecture is to reflect the glory of God. When I grew up in Cambridgeshire, Cambridgeshire was very, very flat, very, very boring countryside. And the Fens, the northern part of Cambridgeshire, is dull as ditch water. It is ditch water. It's a load of things called ditch waters. But for miles and miles around, you can see Ely Cathedral. It stands on this sort of, well, it's an old island. It stands on this hill. Lincoln Cathedral is the same as you go further north. You see these huge, wherever you are in the fields, you can see. And the temple was like that. It was this massive building to say, look, God is here. God is with us. And wherever you are, you can see him. But not only that, it was a place where they were encouraged to go. It was a place to meet with God. It was a place of prayer where they would come and they would seek God's mercy. And through the sacrifices that they made, they would understand that they could confess and receive cleansing for all their sin. It was a place where they could hear God's word and that things were explained to them and they could understand it was a place to, to be reminded about the commands and, and how to live their lives rightly. It was a place to seek help. It was a place to come when we were in need. It was a refuge. It was a place of safety. And churches still to this day are places of refuge where you can't be arrested with inside a, a, a church building where you can come for uh, safety. Where and, and the temple was really, really clear. There was absolutely no way anybody would kill somebody inside the temple. So if you were in danger, you ran to the temple and you uh, felt safe within that. It was a place where justice would be delivered. It was a place to receive encouragement and support from others. But really importantly, this building, this temple was a witness to the world. And if we look at what Solomon intended when he describes this building, he says, as for foreigners who do not belong to your people of Israel, but have come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when they come and pray towards his temple, notice he's saying people who don't have the faith, people who are not in the right race apparently, people can come. And that was always the intention. And then he says, then they will hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigners ask of you. This is remarkable and tragically has been lost, this idea that the temple was a place of refuge so that all peoples on the earth may know your name. So what does this mean for us? The long rambling stuff about temples thousands of years ago. What on earth does this mean for us here uh, in this 21st century with COVID, with churches behind video cameras and all of that? I think the first thing I want to say is that buildings matter to God. That this building that has been entrusted to us from generations matters to God, that we want to be a sign of God's presence, that it's important that people know where they can go to find Christianity, that they know where they can go to find a place of refuge or peace. When we acquired this building, it was given to, a prophetic word was given to be a light on the hill. And it's important for us to be visible. It's important for us to maintain a presence. We could shut the whole thing down, do everything online. But the world has no way of finding us. 
But here we see that God's presence is not hidden. And we need not be ashamed of God. We walk in and it's evident. We walk in and it's clear. And people still believe that to find God, you go to a church. Now, we know we can find God wherever we are, but for many people, and we encounter this, we may be encountering it tonight because we don't know everybody that's here. We certainly encounter it week in, week out, through the week. People come looking for God. And it's a place where we go to meet with him through the lives of others, through the way they worship together, we want to create a sense of encounter with God as we've worshipped, through the way we pray together, and through the explanation and the, the proclamation of God's word. And I came across this conversation between two women at work, one a Christian going to church, one not a Christian. And uh, the the, the, the Non-Christian, maybe a question that you're asked. Why do you go to church every Sunday? Why go to church every Sunday? Of course, many of us say, well, I don't go to church every Sunday, but don't switch off just yet. Uh, why do you go to church every Sunday? Maybe somebody asks you that. Why do you go to church? And uh, see how, what you think of their reply. Because they say this. Uh, um, well, then the question goes on, why do you go every week? Why can't you just go once Christmas and Easter? Why go that regularly? Why does it matter? Does something different happen every time? And the Christian replies, what happens is I go to meet God. And he meets me in other settings than church. However, I must confess uh, that I'm sure I miss most of God's appointments with me. I find that I live most of my life in a daze as though I'm sleepwalking or on autopilot. I go to church to be reminded that he's there. And I thought that was really profound, isn't it? You can meet God. You don't actually, in one sense, you can say, oh, we don't need each other. We don't need to be here together. That clip that I showed talking about the buses was saying that we're stronger together. And why is that? Well, partly it's because when we have this moment where we choose to meet with God, that it gives the opportunity to encounter him in a way that we often miss during the week. I'm very aware that as we've done things on live stream, it's very easy, as soon as we're bored, just to flick over and turn it over, fast forward and you can't do that. Now, I could bore you silly and you can't get out of here. There's something about the act of coming together that allows us to meet God's appointments. Anyway, the, the colleague says, so why do you go to church every week if God and God meets you there? Why do you do it every time? And uh, the woman answered, I go to church every Sunday, and for reasons I can't explain, I meet God about one in every eight worship services. Now, that may be a very poor statistic. You may say, well, that's rubbish. I only meet I've been coming seven weeks. Hopefully, the eighth is going to work. But if you've been coming to church for any length of time, you will know this experience that it isn't every week that you go away and say, that was fantastic. 
You've been coming here for a long time. I guarantee it won't be every week that you go away feeling, this is fantastic. But I'm interested in the next part of the conversation. Um, because the woman asked, then why do you go to church every Sunday? If you only meet with God once every eight weeks or so. And this is the reply. I go to church every Sunday because I never know when one Sunday is going to be the one that I meet with him. And we give ourselves the opportunity for God to change us. Because when it's all on a screen, we can flick before we get to that moment. Now, in a sense, you in the building, you're the converted, you've come. But I want to encourage you to keep coming. I want to encourage you that you may go away from tonight and go, I don't know what that's all about, really. But maybe next week. And there are folks watching the video who haven't yet felt able to come to church and for lots of good and valid reasons. And some of us may not be able to come to church. But some of us may have got out of the habit. And I want to encourage us to find it again. You see, the church is not just here on a Sunday. We're here throughout the week, and we want to be a place of refuge. You'll know that we have a food bank that's open uh, every day of the week. People are coming in all the time. This is a place to find help with financial difficulty, a place to come to find wisdom, to live life. We meant to make sense of life. We want to be a place that offers companionship for those who are lonely. We want to do that tonight. We want to enable and facilitate you meeting people and being able to go away encouraged and not isolated. We want to be a place that provides hope where there is hopelessness. And being when we feel hopeless and we're isolated and we're on our own, it's really difficult to turn that around. But if we can find ourselves next to people who have hope, it is infectious. So let's be together sharing hope. We want to be a place where we can come with our shame, our guilt, and our fear. We absolutely do not want to be a place for the perfect. We don't want to be for the place for the people who pretend they've got all the answers. We don't want to be a place for the people who pretend that they are living righteous lives. The world thinks that only good people can go to church, and then they criticize us for not being good. And if we play that game, we lose. This is a place for useless people. This is a place for people who get it wrong. This is a place for people who can say before God, you know what, I've messed up and I need your help. This is a place for people who are seeking meaning. This is a place for people who, know, who want to know God and to encounter him. And we want to be a witness to the world, just as that temple was. We want to have visibility. We want to be a place of welcome, and that's all of us together. And we want to be a place that attracts people. But is church just a building? Are we excluded if we're not able to come? There are two views of church. The one is, or two views of God. The one is that God is only found in the church, and many in the world believe that. The reality is that God is far bigger and that church is both a people and a place. 
And so the last thing I want to do is really talk much more now about going beyond this building and about rebuilding a temple of God that isn't a physical brick-built building, but is something significant in a different way. In the New Testament, Paul says some radical things. Remember we started by talking about this idea that the temple was this sign of God's presence and they rebuilt it. We'll get to that story sometime before Jesus returns probably and we'll look through Ezra and we'll see how they rebuild the, the temple. And that's where Jesus is. When he comes, that temple is there, the temple that they've rebuilt. But shortly after Jesus, it's destroyed again, and it's still destroyed. There's just one wall left. They wail next to it, cry and lament. And the New Testament says some radical stuff, partly because it's predicting that occurrence, but mostly because it's shifting and saying, do you know what? The temple is no longer the building. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, this is Ephesians 2, and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, him you too are being built together to become a dwelling as a community of people, we are now the temple of God. We are the sign of his presence. We are the place of refuge. We are the place of hope as a community, wherever we're placed together in different places through the week. It says it again in Corinthians. Don't you know that you are temples? You are God's temples. Now, we can't underestimate how difficult and revolutionary this was for them to hear for a number of reasons. One of the main reasons that Jesus was crucified was because they accused him of, want, of predicting the temple be destroyed. He said, the temp, you pull the temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. He meant that he was the temple. They accused him of blasphemy. What was he blaspheming against? He was blaspheming against the temple. And now Paul is saying to a bunch of people who aren't Jews, people in Corinth, people in Ephesus, people in other parts of the world, he's saying, you are the temple of Jerusalem. It's mad. Why are we the temple? Because we are the expression and the physical sign of God's presence in the world. Us as people. We are the place where people meet God. We are the place where people see God. We are the body of Christ, his hands, his feet. A little quote for you. The world at its worst needs a church at its best. The world full of sin, we need a church full of holiness. For a world full of sadness, we need a church full of gladness. For a world that is going down, we need a church that is going up. For a world that complains, we need a church that cares. For a world that is out of tune, we need a church that is full of harmony. For a world that is full of war, we need a church that is full of peace. For a world that is full of lies, we need a church that is full of truth. For a world that is full of defeat, we need a church that is full of victory. For a world that is full of heartache, we need a church that is full of hope. For a world that is full of bad news, 
We need a church that is full of good news. For a world that believes in playing, we need a church committed to praying. For a discouraged world, we need an encouraged church. This isn't about the bricks. This is about the community. This is about the people. This is about the relationships that we share together. And sometimes people say, well, I can be a Christian on my own. I don't need to be a part of a church. But you can't really. It's like an ear saying, I can be an ear on my own. I don't need to be attached to a head. You are an ear, but you just don't work very well. In fact, you don't work at all. We don't work without church. And whether that's Christians who we pray with online or we talk to or we phone or we visit, whether it's about a small group, whether it's about the people in our workplace who we pray with, whether it's about the people who we just talk to and encourage us, or whether it's about being in a place like this. We need church. An audience is a crowd. A church is a family. An audience is a gathering. A church is a fellowship. An audience is a collection A church is an organism. An audience is a heap of stones. A church is a temple. Preachers are ordained not to attract an audience, but to build a church. And I hope that everyone understands that critical difference. If a Lions Club or a golf club is torn with dissension, it is a shame. But when the church of Christ is in turmoil, it is a tragedy. Christ depends on on us. Together, we are the temple of God. Together, we are the sign of God's presence. We, together, bring compassion in the sad places. Wherever you go this week, you're being and taking Christ, and together we're going with you. And you may be amongst sad places, amongst broken and hurting, and people whose pain overwhelms but you're the sign of God's presence in those places. It may be that you're in messy places, places where it's difficult to know what is right and what is wrong, where truth has been distorted, where you sometimes fear that if another Christian saw you there, they'd go, what are you doing in that place? But actually, we've been called to be there and to act with integrity in the places that it's difficult to know what is the right thing to do. When we live by grace, we find ourselves in some very messy places. When we live by judgment, we live in a very clean world, but it's sterile, and we help and change no one. When we live by grace, we get called into the places where it's awkward, and it's tricky, and we care in the hurting places together. That's what we are. We're God's presence in these places not here in the building, but out, in your school, in your college, in your workplace, among your friends, down your street, in your club, in your community. And we're a people who intercede in the perplexing places. We pray. And that's part of being the temple of God. Together we are a temple, helping people to meet with God by living out his character by answering questions that people may have and then inviting people to come in here. You won't have the answers to all the questions. I'm sure I won't have all the answers to questions that Dan has, but we want to bring people together. And where we are, we must live out his character. And we must be that refuge, 
that listening ear for those who are troubled or anxious or fearful or guilty or ashamed. We must offer that non-judgmental support. We must be that temple wherever we are. And we must provide the safe friendship of a God who calls us as we are in order that he may transform us. We are to be a witness to the world, living out the truth, the hope, and the faith that we have. Some of you will know that over the years, we established seven things that we invite people to do to be part of our church. We normally do this at Renewal Sunday, but it just seemed a good moment just to remind ourselves of the seven things that we invite each other to do to be part of church. We invite most of all that we live it authentically that our lives match what we say we believe as best as we are able, that we're people who pray, that we're people who care, that we're people who give. You'll see that they uh, said the next part of the declaration was to provide a free will offering. I'm going to worry you because we will come back to that in future weeks as we look at that scripture, what that meant. We invite you to, to attend where you can, whether it's a house group, whether that's a small group, whether that's just a two or three friends that you look after, whether it's here, but be together. We are not made to be on our own. We're just not made that way. We invite, encourage you to invite, we encourage you to serve where you can. Three questions to reflect on uh, before we, we sing again. Pray a little bit, and then Dan and it will come and, and ask your questions. If you want to text a question, time's running out, but if you want to go for it, 0754489969. I don't know why I say that number. There's no way any of you can jot that down that quickly. It's Kath. She made me say it. Say the number, but you'd read it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't listen. It. You wouldn't go, oh, you have to say that again, Donald. Anyway, I'm wittering. Questions for reflection. What have we missed by not being together? What is it you say to God? Like, this is what I've lacked, and I need it back in my life. Maybe it's challenge. Maybe it's encouragement. Maybe it's role models. Whatever it is, what is it that you've missed? How might God be asking us to rebuild the church? What can we do to reshape and reform? Is he asking us to serve, to pray, to invite? to just gossip about how church has been for us. And what part of the body of Christ is God calling us to be for the world? As we live tomorrow where we are, what is he asking us to be? Is he asking us to be his hands of compassion? Is he asking us to be his ears that listen? Is he asking us to take action? Is he asking us to pray? What is he asking us to do for the world among us? Now wants to come and, and join me. Let's stand together. We'll keep those questions there for a moment. on what we're singing. There we go. Let's pray for a moment.
Lord, we thank you that you're the God who builds a church out of broken and unusual shaped pieces. Thank you that you call us to be part of your kingdom, part of the movement of grace and hope in a broken world. Thank you that you call us, not because we're good or, or the best or the most skilled, but simply because we're open to following. Thank you that you invite us to be your children. Thank you that you invite us to be part of your family. Thank you that you have chosen us for this task. And you have put your spirit on us as a declaration that you will be with us and that you love us. Uh, so Donald, the first one is not actually a question, but somebody has asked, would you please make a mention of Alpha? Uh, because it's a great place to meet with God and to go back to him. Absolutely. So uh, great. So we will be resuming Alpha in the middle-ish, early September. Yeah. I've forgotten the date. Uh, Does anybody know? <laughs> second, uh, it's on the notices as it comes up at the end. Alpha means beginning. 15th. 15th, thank 15th you. It means September. beginning. It's a, time, a, a place where people can ask questions and start at the beginning of Christianity. It's a course that's been run um, by, uh, vented by church in London. It's been run all over the world. We've been doing it for, for 20 plus years. Mm. Uh, it's incredibly valuable and fruitful. Uh, Kath and I do most of the talks, sometimes Dan and one or two others do ones. Folks come, hear a bit of a talk, and then instead of like this, but you can stick your hand up and ask a question yeah. rather than text it in. That's it. And uh, yeah, really, really valuable for people who are wanting to explore or recover or work out what Christianity is. And, if, and it's great to come with someone. So if you, yeah. if, you, if you may think, I don't need it, but maybe you know somebody who does, come with them because That's it's it. easier for them. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's a great way for people to explore Christianity in a safe setting. And uh, people can sign up for that on our website. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So uh, please go to scbc.org.uk. So the first question I've been led to is, um, how do you know, Donald, if you've met with good? I'm not sure what my statistic would be. <laughs> it's a great uh, question. <laughs> how do you know if you've met with God? Yeah. I guess that it's different for all of us. I try not to compare oneself to other people. You can hear people and think, oh, wow, they know God far better than me. Mm. What do I mean by meeting with God? I guess at its bottomless level is just a sense of something has... The word. I, can't, I want to use, I'm trying to stop using the word resonate because it's become my word of the month. <laughs> something that's resonated. Um, <laughs> so you hear something and you think, that makes sense. Mm. That's for me. That helps. It, it can be a feeling during a song. It can be the word of a song. It can be the very point of the sermon, or mm. it can be something tangential that you think that's got no, um, nothing to do with what was actually said. I mean, yeah. quite often people at the door say to me, God, really, I felt God saying this to me. That's not what I say. <laughs> doesn't matter. So it, it's just that sense. And, and I think very often many of us feel, uh, oh, it's not God. It's just me thinking. Mm. 
And there is a blurred line, but it's any sense of thought that is just slightly, it's encouraging, it's exciting, it's, it, for some people it's emotional, for many of us it's logical. Um, but you go away and you go, that helps me this week. Mm. I guess that's what I, I mean. Okay. And there is a sense, isn't there, that, um, that when we come into this place, into his presence, uh, we're always meeting with God. We don't always feel it, but there are those special times, aren't there, where we feel we've yeah. really heard from yeah. him yeah. in an impactful way. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I, and I think some people are much more intuitive. I, I, I don't feel a lot of things. Uh, so some people feel things more than I do. Mm. Uh, there's probably four or five sermons that I could quote you now that changed my life. Mm. And I've listened to probably two sermons twice a week for 40 years. Who can do the math? What, and I could just tell you five. So you would say, yeah. well, what's got happened to the rest? I mean, that's yeah. thousands that have been wasted. But it isn't, because I would say probably two other things are happening. So one is it's that sense for that week. And maybe I have forgotten by Wednesday, mm. but it's, it's fed me. And one of the old analogies is like a meal, that you don't necessarily remember every meal, but if you don't eat, you, go, you starve. Okay. And so sometimes what it is, it's just feeding us truth, it's feeding us uh, faith, that if we don't notice it's there, but when we take it away, mm. it's dropped. And very often people who come back to God and come back to church, and I've, I know people in the last few months have said this, they didn't realize they'd slipped away. They just stopped listening. And, and they didn't realize until suddenly they were desperately hungry and they hadn't realized they'd stopped eating. So I think for, for very often church is, is feeding us quietly and imperceptibly. Mm. So some, there is the, the life-changing ones. There is the stuff that's really helpful for the week, and that's the one in eight. Yeah. But the other seven in eight, it's not wasted. It's just keeping us close to God. That if you take it away you find yourself cold, lacking gratitude, lacking a sense of God being there, lacking mm. direction. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you. That's really helpful. Uh, so the next question is, uh, you spoke in terms of rebuilding the church. Uh, how do we hold intention of the need to contextualize the gospel in seeking to be culturally relevant while staying true to and centered upon uh, the unchanging message of Jesus? These two things in tension, wanting to be culturally relevant, but also true to God and uh, the fact he never changes. So what never changes is that God loves sinners. Mm. What never changes is his uh, burning desire to save people. Mm. What never changes is that he's conquered death. What never changes is that he has sent his spirit to equip and empower us to be witnesses throughout the world. That is unchanging. Mm. But if you read the Bible, I once did it, just, if it, one of the great things about having the Bible online is you can do like searches and you find instantly the number of times. You can think of the number of times God says a new a new song I will give you, a new thing I will do. Yeah. When the disciples were in the transfiguration, uh, where Jesus meets with Moses and whatever up in the mountain, they say to Jesus, let's stay here and build a tent and, make, and do this again. And he says, no. Jesus 
does a new thing all the time. Mm. He, do, he, he transforms one wedding in Cana. Mm. And I think one of the human traditions is that we say, all right, well, that was great. Let's do it again next week. And it's catastrophic. <laughs> it was good last week. It was God's moment for that last week. Uh, that our relationship with God is dynamic. It's, his mercies are new every morning. And, yeah. 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 I would never have imagined when I started in Christian ministry that we would be talking to people through their phones. I mean, when I started in Christian, we didn't have mobile phones, didn't have the internet. And, and I'm not that old, please. I'm not <laughs> that old. You know, I would never have thought we... So the last 18 months, we've done loads of new things. Mm. And you, you, th that's the context. That is the context. But the, 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 re the truth never changes. Mm. But churches crystallize it. And they make it... We just get... The, that was good. Let's keep saying that. And it gets stuck. Mm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Brilliant. Uh, so the next one is, is really two questions, one from this morning, one from this evening, that really, in a way, parallel each other. So I'll say them both, and hopefully you understand the gist. Uh, so uh, Donald has been using the church as an analogy for the temple. So I'm wondering whether Holy of Holies is in our church. And uh, the question from this morning said, the temple veil was torn in two at Jesus' death. How do we understand the differing roles of the church and the temple in light of this. Yeah, brilliant. So in, in the Old Testament, the, the ordinary people like you and I couldn't go into the very heart of God's presence. Mm. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other places, God prophesies that there is going to be a new thing done. Again, new. That the Spirit of God will be in every person. You no longer need a priest. You no longer need a special dog-collared religious person that we're all able to know God. Mm. That is prophesied, and then at the moment of, of, of Jesus' death, there's this dramatic moment where that curtain is torn in two, and it's almost saying, everybody can come in. Mm. And the way that we understand that is that at Pentecost, there is this sense where, this moment where God brings his presence, his spirit, and he pours it into every single believer, which is what Jeremiah and um, Ezekiel prophesied. And that is why Paul says, we are the temple of God. Mm. Because he is saying that the presence of God is within now, within every Christian. So the holy of holies is, you, how can I put this this way? We don't really understand why Jesus needs to die. Mm if we don't understand that God will not tolerate sin in heaven. It, it, it just can't continue. This world is stuffed up, and God is saying that it can't continue. That, that, that There has to be justice for those that have been oppressed and damaged, and there has to be a repentance for those who have done it. And if there isn't a repentance, you're jolly well not going to repeat it in heaven. Mm. And that sense of holiness is... Uh, is crucial to understand what Jesus is doing on the mm. cross. Mm. But we now have in this moment where, yes, we know there's a holy of holies, but the curtain is torn in two. Mm. And there is a dynamic tension in that. Mm. And we're living in this place of God is saying, welcome, but he's still saying, don't do that. Mm. And we've got to hold the two together. Mm. That's really helpful, this... Yeah, I thought God's holiness and sinful beings, it's only through Christ 
uh, that we can know him, have a relationship with him. And yet holiness is important. This leads into another question. Have we got time for yeah, one more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not asleep yet. <laughs> Good to go. So uh, this one is, uh, in Ezekiel, we read of God's glory departing the temple. Yeah. As God's temples, can he ever withdraw his presence from our lives? What is at stake in our seeking to live a holy life? Goodness, good question. Um, I think that as a collective temple, mm. I think God can withdraw from a church and say, that which is being done here is not what I asked you to do, and you're not listening to me. Mm. And as a church leader, I find that uh, really sobering, and, and I, I think it's really important to hold on to that. And you never presume that Sutton Baptist is going to be doing, is going to be filled with God's presence. We could, as leadership, get it wrong. Mm. And we mustn't. We must, we must keep listening. So I think as a collective, I think God, you know, we see loads of broken and empty churches, clearly. And, and sometimes you see these beautiful scriptures on the walls and it's now a furniture warehouse. And you think, God was here and he's gone. Mm. Sad to see. It is. It's mm. tragic, and we must never presume that the arrogance and pride that we're doing it all for God instead of doing it by God is really important. But as an individual, I think there are times when God, we push God out. Mm. So the analogy at Alpha, the analogy we use, I use at Alpha, is that we are, if you like, a house that God has bought. We're like a the temple, but it's called it a house. Yeah. He's bought the price. He bought the house. So he owns us. We are his. When we give our lives to Jesus, we, he moves in. Mm. Now, we can shut him out of different rooms. And apologies if you've done Alpha. You've heard me say this loads of times. We can shut him out of the bedroom. We can shut him out of the kitchen. We can shut him out the uh, living room. We can exclude him from bits of our lives, but we can't kick him out of the house. Mm. We can relegate him to the cupboard under the stairs, mm. but it's still his house. In my view, and Christians will take different perspectives. I think that we can run away from God. At the Psalm 139, go the farthest ends of the sea, the deepest depths, but still he'll be with us. Mm. And we may not feel him, and we may be bitterly angry with him, we may be doing all kinds of things in our life that is not what he wants us to do, but he doesn't leave us. But we may feel that we that he's distant, and that may be because we've removed ourselves. Mm. Now, equally, there are other times when we go through a wilderness where we haven't removed ourselves, but life is difficult and it's tough, and we go, God, where are you? Mm. But I don't believe he leaves us. And sometimes the wilderness is a painful time where we're not sure God is there and the ceiling seems to be holding all our prayers in. But God is kind of saying, Come deeper. Mm. Don't give up on me. So there are different experiences, but I don't think God ever abandons us yeah. as an individual. Mm. So we may be part of a church where God has moved on, but he hasn't moved on from us mm. as an individual. Mm. There may be times when we feel, when we try and remove ourselves from him and through our own sin, we've created all kinds of barriers and it's our shame that creates the distance. It's our guilt that creates a distance. Mm. But there may be other times where, where the devil is attacking us and we're in a wilderness and it's hard and God says, keep coming, yeah. keep hungering after me and, and you will see in looking back that I never left mm. you. 
It's a bit like the first question, isn't it? That we don't always feel it, but that doesn't mean that God's not there. And yeah. we know by faith, he never will leave us nor forsake his people. Um, but certainly there are times where maybe our intimacy, our enjoyment of God uh, might suffer when, say, we're living in sin and um, God's calling us to repent so that we yeah. can enjoy him again and yeah. um, maybe be more effective and fruitful. Absolutely. Have we got one last question? Go or for it. Yeah, we're on a roll. Okay, last one. Uh, it's a bit different. What is special or precious about Jerusalem as a city uh, beyond the temple itself? Why did the temple need to be in Jerusalem instead of, say, Woking? <laughs> there we go. Gosh. Uh, Woking's a lovely place, I'm sure. <laughs> I think we should have stopped before we had that question. You can always edit this part out for the video. Um, I've never been to Jerusalem. I've never been to the Holy Land. Oh, so I may be not the best person to answer this. Um... I believe that it was Jerusalem because that's where they were. Mm. And it had a hill. <laughs> and it could have been Woking if there's a hill in Woking and if that's where God's people were. I don't know mm. Woking either. I've never been to Woking been. or Jerusalem. My life is, is, is missing things. Uh, Has anybody been to Woking? Uh, yeah. Has it got a hill? Has it got a hill, Mike? No, no. there we go. There you go. We've ruled it out. <laughs> I think what I want to say is... And, and this is difficult and controversial, and people have different perspectives. But my own perspective is that when Jesus comes, he talks about bringing in the kingdom of God that isn't about a place, it's about an attitude to God. And that the New Testament then talks about heaven as the new Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes a, a symbol of God's presence, like we talked about the temple being. It is a symbol of God. It's a symbol of him coming and being amongst his people. And Revelation has this incredible, beautiful prophecy. You know, it says, I see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, dressed like a bride, and God will be with him, and God will be at the very center. And that's, for me, what really matters, is Jerusalem is any place that we say, God, you are king, be among us. Mm. And this place can be the, a Jerusalem, and any place can be a Jerusalem. I don't think there is something magical about that hill. Mm. I don't think there's something magical about the Middle East. I think it's where Abraham happened to live, or where Abraham was placed to move to, where you know God's took this man and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be a blessing to the nations. And I think that, the, that a lot of our early civilizations come out of that Middle Eastern culture, so I think that was a sensible place. I think if we'd chosen Woking two and a half, no disrespect to the, to the UK, but I don't think we were as advanced two and a half thousand years ago <laughs> as the Middle East was. It was a place where there was far greater civilization. Mm -hmm and at very heart of it. I'm probably going to need to reflect more on that question. Mm. And others who've been to Jerusalem will have a completely different perspective because I've never been. Mm. But mm. I don't feel... Can I say something controversial? I, I know so many people whose faith has been enhanced by going to the Middle East. Mm. But I don't feel disadvantaged that I've never been there. No. 
and I will see the new Jerusalem. That's powerful. I'd love to go to Jerusalem, but that thought that um, it's wherever God reigns, that's ultimately uh, where he's uh, dwelling mm. and uh, this idea of the temple. Well, thank you, Donald. It's been uh, fabulous. Hopefully it was helpful. And uh, apologies again to uh, any of you who uh, we didn't have time to ask your question.